You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Housing for the Aged Action Group, HAG for short, a housing group for older people run by older Present Raise the Roof! We advocate for secure, affordable and appropriate housing. So listen up on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. That's right, you're listening to the Housing for the Age Action Group show here on 3CR, 855 AM. Raise the roof, you're here with Shane and Fiona. How are you doing, Fiona? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Well, we're <laughs> crying myself to sleep as uh, I'm locked in my house in the curfew of stage four lockdowns, but also learning to bake, so it's not all bad. Um, this week for the show, Fiona wanted to talk to a historian about the... Uh, about previous pandemics, especially the flu pandemic of 1918-19, and it turned out to be pretty interesting. Do you want to say anything before we um, go to that? No, I think we just go straight into the interview. Straight into it. Okay, so we're joined today by Dr. Anthea Hislop, who's a retired academic historian, and she's done a lot of research and writing about the flu pandemic from 1918-19, and she was a senior lecturer in history at the Faculty of Arts at the Australian National University and at the University of Adelaide. And her interest in the subject began when she began looking into the history of the Ballarat Ballarat Base Hospital, um, which obviously was influenced by the flu. So welcome today, Anthea. How are you? Well, thank you, Fiona. Thanks very much. Now, the first question I wanted to ask you was about the term Spanish flu. So we commonly hear about um, about the Spanish flu that's commonly known as that, but it sounds to me like it might be something how, like Trump calls the current flu, the China flu. It didn't really start in Spain. Um, so would you be able to tell us about the, the what we should be calling the Spanish flu and, and perhaps why it got that name to start with? Well, I think it's probably best to adopt the the term that was officially adopted in Australia in 1918, which was pneumonic influenza. Now, that's a mouthful, of course, so we could call it pneumonic flu. Um, The Spanish element was nothing to do with sort of blaming a particular country for, um, for having sort of unleashed it on the world. It wasn't that at all, as rather the association with Spain emerged because during World War One, which is when the the pneumonic influenza pandemic uh, arrived. It it was 1918 uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, the the spring of that year. Um, The thing is that most of the countries uh, of Europe were were locked in battle with one another and they were not uh, letting on about all sorts of ailments their troops might be suffering. Uh, But Spain was a non-combatant country and so Spain's experience of influenza uh, got into, you know, became public knowledge. And that's really, it was just a way of locating it, I think. Spain didn't like the fact that it was being called Spanish influenza, but but they had to put up with it, I guess. Um, but they were simply the cases that were, that were known about at the time that Spain had this flu. But it, so did Germany, so did Britain, uh, and so did uh, the United States uh, eventually. 
Um, although, of course, the first wave of it had come from the United States on troop ships, so that was a fairly mild wave. But then something very nasty happened to the flu virus in Western Europe. Uh, it mutated into something much more dangerous. And so then that's what we tend to think of when we think of this flu pandemic. And then there was a second wave of that very dangerous type uh, of uh, virus, flu virus. Um, yeah. In terms of, it sounds to me, in terms of the waves, the first wave and the second wave, and from my understanding, um, there's quite a lot of similarities between what happened 100 years ago and what's happening now. Um, for you as an expert on the pandemic from 100 years ago, what's the most startling kind of comparison that you've seen or what have you observed in the last few weeks and months that's made you think, oh, history's repeating? Well, it, it, it felt the way it was we were having to confront it. It felt uh, familiar, if you like, to, to the historian's mind. But, but of course, it was a different virus. And um, I guess what first of all made me nearly fall off my sofa was uh, the news that Western Australia had closed its border because, of course, the closing of borders was uh, a big issue and, and an important one in uh, 1919 in Australia. Uh, I was a bit surprised that we weren't wearing masks because I, I found masks a rather reassuring idea and, and uh, of course they'd worn them uh, like anything in, in uh, Australia in 1918-19 or 1919 particularly because that's when the disease was in the community. Um, the other thing of course as you think about it is that although it was a different virus it was the same sort of problem in that we didn't know what we were dealing with. It was a new phenomenon. Now, flu itself as a disease was an old familiar friend, but this particular version of the flu virus was not. And people could only, you know, alleviate the symptoms. Good nursing was very important. There was no magic cure. And of course, there was no flu vaccine. Flu is a virus. Um, so is coronavirus. Um, but uh, there, there were efforts to, to produce a vaccine at the time but it was a bacterial vaccine because, of course, bacteriology was well known by this time. It was really at the forefront of medical science. Uh, and people assumed that this was a bacterial disease. But uh, the bacterial vaccine that was devised in various places, including Australia, uh, was useful up to a point. It helped to minimise the, the risk of... Um, of dying of secondary uh, bacterial infections while you had this pneumonic influenza, but it didn't prevent the pneumonic flu itself, as of course flu viruses do these days. We get a shot in the arm each year, I do, uh, and I tell myself that I won't be getting the particular version of flu that's going around. Uh, but of course we have no vaccine yet for the coronavirus. So but there are other things too that are similar. The, well, just the question of social distancing, that's very important. Um, home quarantine, which uh, rather depends on who's doing it as to how reliable it is. But quarantine generally, I think the other thing that struck me was that, you see, we'd previously thought, oh gosh, we won't have the kind of protection that maritime quarantine gave us in 1918, uh, because people fly these days and flying takes a lot less time so this whereas in the days gone by you could you could count on an epidemic that if it started sort of somewhere as you're leaving England it would be well over by the time you got to Australia on board ship 
but uh, not anymore, so that people could be have fulminating feverish conditions as they stepped off a plane. But now, of course, we have this hotel quarantine, which up until recently was working remarkably well and in good hands, in the right hands. It, it uh, has been impressively successful, uh, but we've had uh, problems in Victoria, as you know. Um, so, you mentioned that masks were common in 1919. I was interested, you know, now we see these kind of conspiracy theories about masks being unnecessary or being, you know, imposed for, for sinister reasons by the government. Was there anything comparable to that or any kind of, you know, folk wisdom or conspiracy theories around the pandemic uh, in the 1919? Well, there were some uh, ideas that, that it somehow it had been unleashed by the war with all the bombing on the mm -hmm. West that the, the plague, you know, bubonic plague had somehow leapt out of the soil and, and that this was really plague rather than flu and people were just calling it flu to reassure us. The, I don't think many people subscribed to that, but it was, was one sort of uh, theory that the government was, was, uh, was uh, telling a, a softer story to reassure people, uh, not but um, the, the flu got quite a number of names associated with the plague, uh, partly because journalists tend to, to sort of wax rhetorical and talk about it as a plague. I mean, as a metaphor, if you like, uh, because we can talk about plagues of locusts. It doesn't have to be the particular plague disease that we use that word for. Um, but the, the other thing was that, that Sydney and Brisbane, certainly parts of the east coast of Australia, had had bubonic plague in the first decade of the 20th century. So they knew all about that. And it was quite easy for people to get pneumonic and bubonic mixed up and talk about the bubonic flu or, or simply the pneumonic plague. Uh, there was reference to the black plague. Uh, and that, I think, came from not so much invoking the Black Death of the 14th century or whenever it was, uh, as rather the fact that the cyanosis, when people's lungs were filled with this bloody froth from the, the terrible effects of, of the flu, of, of the pneumonic flu, um, they weren't, their bodies weren't getting enough oxygen, and so they would turn a bluish sort of mauve colour, and that was a very bad sign if they were sinking. Um, and it was a form of cyanosis, and it, it was a symptom. It wasn't, wasn't a cause. What caused it was the fact that their lungs weren't functioning properly. Actually, that's another resemblance with coronavirus. They are both, of course, respiratory ailments, so naturally they have certain features in common, but the, uh, the way coronavirus affects the lungs is, is uh, quite alarming, just as it was with the uh, pneumonic flu. Well, I mean, another connection that we wanted to ask you about, obviously this show's about housing issues and, you know, th especially mm -hmm. public housing has been uh, central in Victoria to the, the way the virus has spread and the government's response to it. How did the kind of housing conditions of the, the 19 teens uh, affect the, the virus or the ways that the, the community responded to it? Well, I think the... the um the housing conditions of, of old, you know, inner suburban slum areas around the cities, the, the suburbs, if you like, that have been established first, places like um, Chippendale and, and uh, Mills, Millers Point in Sydney, near the harbour and so on, uh, they were notorious as, as unhealthy places and over, seriously overcrowded and poorly drained and all the rest of it. Uh, in Sydney, quite a lot of that had been 
pulled down uh, because of the plague, although that really hadn't been the most efficient solution to the plague. The best thing to do was, of course, kill the rats, first of all, that, that were um, whose fleas were transmitting the plague. Um, a good deal was revealed about the state of slum housing in the Spanish flu because a lot of people were, were, you know, through sort of being involved in relief teams and helping neighbours and so forth, uh, or helping people in less fortunate parts of the city, uh, were discovering how bad things were. And there was a lot of commentary, I, I know, in Tasmania. I, I'll, I'll read this out to you just very quickly, if I may. Um, one uh, commentator said, the rents are high and the ceilings low, the families large and the rooms small, the floors rat-eaten and walls mere bug runs. And uh, so they were overcrowded uh, badly. Uh, and that, uh, that I think is true of all Australian cities at the time, is that there were these old inner suburbs close to industrial activity with a lot of pollution and a lot of overcrowding. Now, it was one thing to pull, thing, pull houses down, as they did in Sydney, a lot with the plague. Uh, it was another to sort of find other places for people to live, you know, for there to be good worker housing in, in salubrious areas. And so there was perhaps less immediate response than one might think, but certainly flu, uh, simply because of the overcrowding, that, that, you know, flu spread more quickly in these old industrial suburbs and uh, people were often in poorer condition for dealing with it. Um, it. It certainly came to the fore as a problem. People were reminded of a problem that they sort of half knew about already. Um, ask me another question. <laughs> it's sounding very familiar, I have to say, um, just in terms of the poor quality housing and the overcrowding that we're seeing today um, being replicated back then, really, because we've always known that housing is an issue and housing is connected to health, but it's not really something that um, becomes starkly so prominent unless something like this happens. And, and I'm also wondering about, you mentioned home quarantine and, and social distancing as being two strategies from a hundred years ago that we're trying again today. What were the issues for people who didn't have stable housing? Do you know if was it possible for people to be able to home quarantine or was home quarantining in a crowded place just going to exacerbate the issue? Well, home quarantine in a family with a lot of children and sharing bedrooms and sharing beds even was, was uh, you were on a hiding to nowhere with trying to isolate yourself in those situations. What would happen was that the household would be isolated. Uh, relief would come from, from municipal uh, teams, volunteers and doctors and nurses, <coughs> excuse me, uh, bringing relief if people put up a sign in their windows with SOS or it might be a, some yellow material, the, the quarantine flag uh, and things like that uh, so that relief was available but people often, and those relief teams often found things in a pretty shocking condition because everybody in the household was sick and one of them would be dying. I need a drink of water, excuse me. And, and how long did it take for the government so it sounds to me that the community, as they are today, rallied around and assisted each other via their neighbours and via these teams of volunteers. How long did it take for the crisis to dissipate and for government to implement reform around things like health and housing? Well, 
the the flu came and went a couple of times it it was there was a quite a big wave of the nasty flu in the early part of 1919 the early months and that spread slowly around the country it was held up to some extent by border closures which was useful um but uh so that places like queensland got it a bit later and western australia and tasmania later again and had a much milder experience but um the oh hang on for, for a moment i've lost my thread um it was the the question of sort of reforms coming out of the flu pandemic that took a while uh, as i was possibly saying earlier that it's easier to pull houses down than it is to sort of put them up again or find other places for working uh, men and women to live uh, in the meantime and that often just sort of shifted the problem across the suburb to somewhere else uh, it was nobody's fault if you like that that people had you know well it was not certainly not the fault of the people living in these conditions that they were so overcrowded and the areas poorly drained um, but gradually uh, things do improve. People were aware of the problems of ventilation because tuberculosis had been a problem in Australia and, and still was, so that there were, the idea of housing reform was certainly on the agenda. But it's not really until, well, the, the kinds of public housing we're talking about now as constituting a health problem, uh, they don't in fact appear until the 1950s and 60s. Uh, after World War Two, so by that time we've had a depression and another world war, and of course they don't exactly speed up domestic reform. And did uh, they have? Did they have sort of similar to you mentioned the inner city suburbs? So in Melbourne, we shut down suburb by suburb for a little while before the whole city went into lockdown. Was there anything in the media that sort of stigmatised poverty and working people as being a health risk? Or was it more this we're, we're all in it together, as they keep telling us at the moment? Well, I, in, in uh, 1919, there was, I, I guess, a sense that, that uh, crowded communities living in fairly squalid conditions were going to constitute a problem. But it wasn't somehow suggested that they were, um, if you like, nests of disease that threatened everybody else. In, on previous occasions that had been the feeling that it might well be that the world to do in society would start exercising their minds about the plight of slum dwellers but it was a there was a strong element of self-interest in that uh, that if you cleaned up lower Richmond then upper Richmond would be a lot more salubrious uh, so I think I think there's one thing I want to say about the the high-rise housing we have these days when those buildings were put up we see now the criticisms, uh, you know, we can make criticisms of how it's all done. But at the time that they were being built, infectious disease was really no longer the problem that we see today. It was no longer the problem that had existed in 1919 because we had antibiotics for, in, uh, for bacterial diseases and we had vaccination for all sorts of other uh, infectious diseases. And TB was uh, under control. Um, not quite eliminated but certainly well under control by the 1960s so to have um, you know shared laundries and shared lifts and narrow corridors was not really a problem in itself they were not deliberately uh, the people who designed them were not deliberately being careless about that sort of thing it, it, you could say that 
the public health aspect was taken care of by sufficient ventilation and decent drainage and of course sewerage and, and good water supply. Uh, but uh, we, as we now know, of course, if something like Spanish influenza or pneumonic flu rather uh, comes back in another form, namely the coronavirus, we're in trouble all over again. Is there, it, we're just today, we're recording this on Monday, so we've just today entered the first day of stage four lockdowns in Melbourne. Is there any lessons that we can learn from the, the pneumonic pandemic flu pandemic from 100 years ago that may give people some sort of sense of hope or, or in that, that it passes and that these things work? Or is, is there any learnings that you um, think are useful for the listeners to know about from back then? Well, it, it does pass. Uh, the, the influenza of, uh, in Australia in 1919 had more or less died out by or, or simply become more like an ordinary flu. So that the nasty strain had disappeared by towards the end of that year. Uh, the death toll had was gone right down by October, November. Uh, but it had come in several waves as, as what we're seeing now um, uh, with, with uh, coronavirus. Uh, so these these things do um, they can become attenuated and become more like a, a common problem. But I don't see any sign of this particular coronavirus becoming more like the common cold anytime soon. So I do think we need to hang out for a vaccine, uh, which of course enough people will gladly uh, undergo. Um, which and and once you have a you know, you reduce the so-called pool of susceptibles by vaccinating people and a small proportion of people turn their backs on vaccination, of course, uh, and uh, they get protected by the fact that everyone else has had the vaccine. Yeah. Shane, do you... Yeah, I'm too pessimistic. I'm anticipating that next year will be a whole lot better than this year, but I do hope the vaccine will come soon. Well, it better be. The... Um... Uh, I mean, we're almost out of time, but maybe that is a, I mean, that's a, a kind of more hopeful note to, to wrap up on. Is there any last things that you wanted to share with the listeners? Uh, I, I think um, the internet has, has made a great difference to, to how people perceive these things. Um, it's a good for spreading information and good for all sorts of positive things, but it also seems to nourish um, conspiracy theories uh, that uh, and you know people start reading strange stories about things and if they're th that way inclined they, they adopt these things there was no sort of major conspiracy theory uh, back in, in 1919 in Australia there were little mutterings about this and that but people knew that this was a, a disease it was a known disease um, that had changed to something much nastier than it usually was uh, whatever they might call it. Um, um, if, well, if the listener's interested in finding out more about what happened in Australia, um, um, Dr. Anthea was on a show on the ABC about a month ago, and it's still up on ABC iView. Um, it's called Lest We Forget on Australian Story, and it's got some great um, interviews with yourself and some other historians, but also some fantastic photos of lots of people wearing masks um, back in the day and and just what it was like particularly with the um, maritime quarantine in Sydney and Melbourne so I would encourage listeners to look that out and we'll put a little link in the show notes
Um, is there anything else either of you would like to finish the up? Finding one's breathing. Uh, one doctor likened to, them, to the black hole of Calcutta, which is where, of course, people died of asphyxiation um, many decades before. Uh, but but um, no, I think the, the feeling was that it was beneficial. It was certainly important for people tending the sick to wear masks. But interestingly, in a place like New Zealand, I think there was much less wearing of masks. Poor New Zealand had such a shocking attack of flu. Uh, it, it all happened very quickly, uh, came on very quickly, and they had no time to do anything with vaccines, however useful or otherwise they might be. Uh, and masks didn't seem to feature much. But once you get masks in Australia, then everyone starts taking photos of themselves with them on. So there's quite a lot of photogra photography. And it, the, the photographic record in that show, not just for masks, it was terrific. The ABC did a terrific job with that uh, program. Yeah, it was it great. Was on the 1st of June. I would recommend it to anyone that's interested in the topic. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time to tell us about the past. It's good to take some learnings from history in these, in these un, feels like unprecedented, but maybe not so much unprecedented times. Um, so thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR. So that was Dr. Anthea Hislop, a uh, retired historian talking about the flu pandemic. I hope some of you found that interesting and took some comfort from the fact that this is not the first time that Melbourne has gone through this. And even though as we are recording this, we're on the first day of stage four lockdown, um, we've done it before guys and we can do it again. So any final words before we finish up for this fortnight, Shane? Well, if people need some housing assistance, they can give us a call at HAG, especially uh, older Victorians over 50. Um, give us a call on 1300 765 178. Um, yeah, I, I don't share Fiona's insipid optimism about these things. It's a horrible time. But uh, there is help. Uh, if, if we can help you, please do give us a call. That's 1300 765 178. And I should also quickly mention that it's Homeless Week this week. And so we will be bringing you next fortnight some really interesting and great content all about housing and homelessness for older people. So that's all we have time for. And we'll see you again next fortnight. See you later. Bye. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.